Welcome to Hemp Barons, Amber Littlejohn. What a thrill it is to have you with me on the show today. Yes, thank you, Joy, for having me here today. It's an absolute pleasure. Anytime I get to spend with you is usually one that brings me joy. So uh, thank you for having me today. So kind. God, do I love being your reflection. Speaking of which, we need more Ambers in every form of cannabis. Um, and you've come to the to the hemp world uh, and even to the cannabis world as an attorney and as a sophisticated one at that um, who has worked with and for the American Herbal Products Association. So the level of command that you have over all of the sort of codes of federal regulation or at least the, the general barriers, as it were, and guidelines for the manufacture, distribution, holding, and labeling of food and beverage and of dietary supplements is tremendous. And um, we, of course, uh, here in the United States are now enjoying the full legalization of hemp as an agricultural commodity, inclusive of its derivatives, its extracts, and its cannabinoids. Of course, everyone is aware that there's a tremendous dietary supplement and food and beverage market out there right now for CBD, cannabidiol, the more famous of these cannabinoids, uh, that the FDA's guidance position is we cannot market these things legally as as, uh, as dietary supplements and food and beverage. But they, of course, have already received their marching orders uh, from Congress in the form of the 2018 Farm Bill and uh, are apparently uh, working on creating that regulatory framework. So we need you and we need you desperately, not just because of your legal skills, but for that particular awareness. And then, of course, on top of it, you are an absolute national, if not international, foremost expert on social equity. And now the executive director of the Minority Cannabis Business Association. So first, let's start. What on earth brought you to cannabis, Amber Little John? <laughs> Tell us, please. I will say it was kind of a natural progression. I feel like the universe just kept pulling me in closer and closer to uh, the cannabis space. Uh, as you mentioned, I actually started in another wild and embattled and emerging industry, which is the sports nutrition segment of dietary supplements, uh, where we have uh, a group of products that are innovative, um, that people love and use, and that transform lives. Uh, but with a lot of opposition and pushback and, and flack from regulators. And also a lot of need on our end to grow and engage and mature as an industry. So um, I went to work for the American Herbal Products Association uh, here in, in D.C. And through the work that I was doing with APA, um, again, just in the regulatory space for dietary supplements. Uh, I found myself stepping in on occasion on hemp and CBD issues. And then the progression into the space full time was natural for me. Um, I saw such a need to take some of what I have, have learned. And it's really almost the ability to have foresight when it comes to regulations and issues of self-governance and self-regulation and navigating uh, uncharted territories. And so having the ability to to navigate that successfully on the supplement side really um, has translated well and, and drew me to want to start doing the same in the cannabis space. 
Man, are we ever the beneficiaries of you hearing the call of the universe, uh, which I which I sort of interchange with universe and plant. Plant and universe, universe and plant. They really are in charge. And thank you for being a vessel uh, for these for these purposes. What then? Also, on top of this tremendous foundation of of knowledge um, and experience, brought you into the Minority Cannabis Business Association. You know, for me, I have always had this conflict between kind of my master of the universe side um, and my core, my roots, my family roots, which is in progress, progress and change and advocacy. And my mother, uh, you know, a revolutionary. Some of my first memories are of my Irish mom getting a pro- arrested at sit-ins <laughs> over apartheid. And so... For me, I've never been able to distance um, my professional values uh, from my personal values. That has translated in work that I've done for the small business space uh, throughout my career and for advocating kind of for the industry little guy and being able to enfranchise voices in industry that are not heard regularly. And that was the case in sports nutrition. They were a voice that was not heard. A lot of assumptions were made about who they are and what they did and what their values were. Um, And a lot of people making decisions um, for that industry without actually engaging that industry. So for me, even professionally, it was a natural progression. And as I saw a real absence of a voice for minorities in this, in the, in the advocacy space. A lot of people talking about the minority cannabis industry, but not people actually talking to the minority cannabis industry about policy that was being made. And so you can't have multi-state operators making decisions for small cannabis businesses, and you can't have activists from outside of the industry that are experts in other areas, uh, such as criminal justice reform, or other issues in social change, making decisions that are industry-centric. While we are aligned 100% on those issues, we have a level of expertise and knowledge and experience when it comes to how the laws are impacting us and how the market is impacting us. So a really strong opportunity to really bring our community to this space. And I love a challenge. So it has been a journey. (laughs) Over the last year and a half, we've taken MCBA's federal policy program from non-existent to a key player in the movement now. And so we're we're really proud of that work and, and really excited to see what we're going to be able to do with a Congress that is going to be more friendly and an administration that's going to be more friendly to us. I am feeling confident. I am feeling hopeful. I am feeling lucky. And, and frankly, I've always been feeling that way. I, I will sit here and quote uh, Bob Marley, um, who was actually quoting Halai Selassie's 1969 speech to the United Nations in Geneva. Uh, but we are confident in the victory. Um, and yet we see it and feel it closer than ever now as uh, the winds of change are really speeding up here in the United States and, and throughout the planet. And it sounds to me, you know, we're, we're so similar in so many ways, cut off the same block. Uh, you know, it's an incredible that cannabis in all of its forms, medical, adult use, industrial, sacramental, um, the convergence of planetary healing, human healing and, and justice 
uh, the the strong senses that that both of us have and the convergence of those things coming together is really just for me uh, the most fulfilling, rewarding work that I could pursue um, ever. So the, the plant is just sort of the gift that absolutely uh, keeps on giving in that I get to touch all of those places of, of value and importance um, inside of me. And uh, and for the Minority Cannabis Business Association, now we have been so blessed that the MCBA shares you to some extent with both the U.S. Hemp Roundtable, 501c4 Advocacy uh, Association, of which I am so proud and so pleased to be a highly contributing member, and the U.S. Hemp Authority, a 501c6 trade association, though not necessarily member-driven as we think of a trade association, an actual certification program that, like all legitimate and leading certification programs, uses an independent third party, and in the U.S. Hemp Authority's case, world-class uh, certifying body to carry out uh, and, and audit and um, earn the certifications or judge, uh, score those certifications for the U.S. Hemp Authority. Um, and within the U.S. Hemp Roundtable, of course, uh, your main responsibility, and thank you so much for your volunteer work doing this, um, is through our Minorities Empowerment um, Committee, the MEC, uh, as it were. Can we talk a little bit about your really some of your observations as you're learning about the hemp industry and where the hemp industry in terms of diversity and inclusion, where are our biggest areas of improvement? Where where do those need to be? And you're not going to offend me when and if you say every single one, Joy. <laughs> what are your thoughts on diversity and inclusion and the emerging hemp industries in the United States? So a little bit about the MEC, uh, the U.S. Roundtable's MEC, um, how that came to pass is as the movement for Black Lives uh, started to hit a peak last year, uh, someone from the organization reached out and said to me something that was unique, and that was, we want to do something, but we want to actually do something impactful. We don't want to just put up a, a statement. We don't want to just, you know, put up the, the black square on our social, we wanna do something. And so that's what really struck me and made me want to work with the round table to get this thing moving. And so I've been surprised and heartened and I think a lot of people uh, in and outside of the industry would be surprised at the willingness and the amount of energy given to this over the last year. So where I see the biggest need for her improvement is the fact that there are very, very few people of color in the hemp industry. And so we have an industry that, like the cannabis side and the THC side, um, is built on the blacks of communities of uh, the backs of communities of color. Now, in a very different way, uh, with a very different history, but there is still the history of, of an industry growing uh, in a state of oppression. And so there is a need to be mindful of, of the inclusion of people of color, especially from the communities that have been systematically oppressed uh, through the growth of your industry. Now, a little bit different than on the THC side is that the modern industry doesn't carry the history and, and the direct connection um, 
that the THC side does. So there really is an opportunity for the hemp industry to move forward in building um, and build in a way um, that is positive, that isn't having to stay married to this negative kind of slavery narrative that I, a lot of people in my community are just tired of hearing about. We want to we want to understand how you are going to work with us and look towards repairing and restoring and empowering, not a whole lot. We already know that there are disparities. We know that there is a lack of representation. We've held enough panels. We, you know, have enough data in a lot of the cases. We really just want to move forward. And so there is a lot of work to be done in terms of recognizing and understanding the value of diversity. And I think we really see that when we look at industries that are diverse and especially when they are innovation driven and the innovators come through diversity, the ability to adapt and sustain comes from diversity. And so if you're not looking at the moral implications of it, there are a ton of bottom line reasons. If you're going to go to the regulatory side, the ability to engage and understand the communities and the markets that you are impacting with your regulated product is essential to, again, being proactive in being protective of those communities and making sure that your products are safe and effective and um, going to be sustaining in the market. So a multitude of reasons that even extend beyond moral that we would like to see people pushing for diversity um, in this industry. And so it has been a challenge as we are looking uh, and doing outreach within the community to even find speakers of color. Um, the other big thing is, is really just uh, looking at the barriers to entry. And they are barriers to entry that oftentimes people who have been in the industry for some time don't even get because they're so good at it and they have so much knowledge. But that knowledge that you have is expensive and it is a barrier. People don't understand basics of compliance, industry supply chain, don't have the relationships. And those are gigantic barriers to entry that I really hope the industry um, is a little bit more mindful of or a lot bit more mindful of. <laughs> a lot bit, a lot bit. And <laughs> while you're so familiar with it, um, do you mind if I just take a quick 60 seconds uh, for the listeners who, who have certainly heard we've addressed this on my show before, um, but for those who haven't, if we could just quickly address uh, hemp's unique role in slavery um, and slavery's unique role in hemp, particularly Kentucky, which apparently the state of Kentucky was not so big on slave trade. Uh, having said that, until hemp came along, the longest, strongest stock in the world, which we so appreciate after it's been harvested and processed. However, harvesting and processing the longest, strongest stock in the world um, is quite a physical challenge. And this is what brought, really promoted um, and became the, the need for Kentucky to begin um, or at least really move forward with slavery. Um, so it thought at the time to the point where because there there wasn't so much of a need for this type of labor is my understanding that 
hemp harvest is a seasonal situation. So Kentucky then began to have a surplus, as it were, uh, in slave residents in Kentucky and then became slave traders due to the surplus, so to speak, in human life uh, that it began to aggregate um, during the the off season, so to speak. Um, So a really sad and, and critical piece of of slavery history that hemp has played and we've got to heal that um and it's a it's a number one duty and it is a number one purpose um for us to be able to move forward to heal that and having said that unlike our cannabis um laws that are being contemplated at the federal level In the Farm Bill, at the 11th hour of the 2018 Farm Bill, of course, a drug felon provision was put in. Now, there were all kinds of speculation as to what sort of trade-off had occurred at the 11th hour. Perhaps something much worse uh, would have happened had had this trade not been made, but that's neither here nor there. The bottom line is, at the 11th hour of the 2018 Farm Bill, there was a provision put in that said, if you um, have been convicted of a drug felony within the last 10 years, you will not be able to take uh, advantage of the promise of hemp or of the opportunity of hemp unless you've been grandfathered in um, because you have an existing state license. And then, of course, it goes on to say, basically, however, should you get a new drug felony, you're out for another 10 years. So we're really talking about hemp now doubling down, punishing, repunishing, and continuing to punish those who have been disproportionately affected by the failed war on drugs. So we, we sort of have this extra uh, challenge before us and an extra duty here, Um, that particular crop, that particular form of cannabis. Um, And of course, that's on our legislative agenda for the U.S. Hemp Roundtable to repeal the drug felon ban to the the extent that we can. before we move on with that, I just want to make sure we so we talked about a couple of the bottom line issues, uh, bottom line benefits of companies who are practicing diversity inclusion, one of them being, as you said, from a regulatory perspective, the ability to engage. Can you give us a couple other examples of what boards of directors, whether you're a large corporate uh, company or otherwise, um, when you include people of color, indigenous people, um, when you include diversity, how that benefits that entity. Joy, briefly before I I touch on that, I wanted to add something to what you said last. And that is the fact that the farm bill at the very last moment included that provision uh, that would have excluded individuals with drug felonies. Um, Unfortunately, the only bill, uh, comprehensive cannabis bill to clear a chamber of the of the U.S. Congress, uh, the Moore Act, at the very last moment included a provision that would have made it possible for the federal government to exclude from the industry people with not just arrests, but I mean, not just convictions, but arrests as well. So this is something that happens. And so we're taking the people that have been most impacted, not just by the war on drugs, but all of the vestiges of slavery over time, people that have been impacted by poverty and systemic racism. We keep excluding them from these discussions and from these industry uh, and and from the industry in general. So I want to make sure that it isn't just hemp. What we're seeing is these late moment bargains that are willing to to throw out 
the people again that have been most harmed by both the vestiges of slavery and and the war on drugs. Oh, and to and to insert just a tiny bit of lightheartedness here now that you mention it, I so remember the day that that happened because I think I was bugging you for some unrelated thing, and I remember you responding. You literally wrote, um, "As soon as I'm finished handling the dumpster fire that has become the more act, I'll get right back to you, Joy." I totally remember that you used that. Oh. If that. If I stuck to that, Joy, we probably wouldn't be speaking for a while. So unfortunately, um, what we were so hoping, you know, on one side, we got through the most equitable bill that we're going to see in a long time. But on the other side, that happened at the consequence and at the cost of representing the people that have been most impacted. Mm. So back to your original question, which was uh, the benefit of board members and leadership that is of color. Um so the bottom line benefit is, again, adaptability. If you're looking at some of the companies that are able to navigate markets and spaces and understand the discussions that need to happen, they are companies that have diverse leadership. This is not an industry that is going to move ahead without the conversations around equity. That, that has been laid down in almost every state and definitely on the federal level. So to be able to lead and to navigate and to build the relationships that you need to build to get ahead of a market or to have advantages in a market, you need to be able to relate, adapt, have vision, uh, and make the connections necessary to build coalitions. And diverse individuals are going to be able to do that. You know, people that uh, I represent are going to feel a whole lot better having a conversation with a senior vice president of a multi-state operator that looks like them, then not. Um, people within the community are going to have a lot more trust and a lot easier time engaging people that look like them. So that is important, even just from a representation perspective and an understanding of the community perspective. Again, I think this comes back to diversity, being able to understand on a visceral level what equity is and what it looks like so that it comes in and is incorporated into everything that happens. And it's not just about initiatives because we don't, we love the initiatives and it's great, but it needs to be woven throughout everything that you do. And the more diverse a company is, the more your CSR, your corporate social responsibility is going to be in everything that you do, not a side project that you pull out when you need the PR. Amen. Amen. And, and for those who are looking for investment dollars, um, get with the program. Uh, conscious companies, which many times these megalopolis, you know, major, major well-funded companies that are, are the venture capitalists or do have that money, um, understand that they are looking for diverse leadership and diverse boards. And so if you, if you're totally white or totally white male, um, you know, board, if you think that that's a a popular vision, um, in 2021, think again, it's not, um, and it's, it's not necessarily going to attract those investment dollars at all when when uh, these more sophisticated and more enlightened um, investors are looking specifically for for diversity and inclusion. 
And that brings me to, Amber, could we talk a little bit about the, and as we speak about the U.S. Hemp Roundtable and certainly our general counsel, who is just a total mensch, uh, Yiddish, for just really um, a, a man of, of honor and integrity and, uh, and, and certainly elicits that from the people in his organization, um, or at least the, that he represents, we're talking about really wanting to put our money, the USM Brown tables, where our mouths are. And how can we do that without assessing um, our own selves and our own members? So could you talk a little bit about the tools that are being prepared uh, so that we are assessing ourselves and, and holding ourselves to the very standards that we are wanting to put out there in the world? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, you have to understand yourself. So you have to understand where you're at and what you have and what tools you have to be able to move forward from there. Um, we haven't at the roundtable chosen to focus on diversity in the industry because that's an easy one. It doesn't exist. Uh, that's not a thing. But where we have chosen to focus our energy is really internally on the companies and providing tools for them to take a look at what they have in place, who they have in place, what they're doing if there are any policies and, and really looking towards engaging further. And so one of the things that I really like about the approach of the round table and that I really respect is that it hasn't been, Hey, let me reach out to you people of color and have you tell me what I need to do. It's been about looking inward and doing the assessment and doing the hard work. Um, and then really identifying where there is need and where they can be helpful and coming to resource limited organizations of color, people of color, businesses of color, and offering support and offering to empower and offering to elevate and listen. And I think that is a really critical uh, set of steps within the approach, because again, a lot of times especially big organizations that are kind of considered the, the big guys and where big industry goes to have discussions. There is such a tendency to say, this is what I'm willing to do. Not really willing to look inward, but this is what I'm willing to do. And I need you to co-sign on it to make me look better and feel better. And that hasn't been the approach. And I will say that um, I have been pleasantly surprised uh, really by the hemp industry because in a lot of in a lot of ways I get a lot more genuine commitment to listen and do the work and be open to self-assessment than I get on the cannabis side where self-interest and self-preservation I think a lot of times clouds people's ability and willingness to, to look inward at their company and at their practices and empower others. And uh, so I, I really do. Again, I think it's a surprising approach. I think a lot of people, including myself, given some of the champions of the hemp industry on the political side, would be surprised to see to see who who really is there and, and where they are in terms of support. 
of our community. Yay, no, I know it indeed. And uh, and you're being so wonderfully diplomatic, which of course is your practice and mine as well. There's no taking away of the of the support of hemp that Senator Mitch McConnell has given us. Um, and at the same time, we, we certainly welcome the support of Chuck Schumer, who is uh, much more of a humanitarian and we'll leave it at that. <laughs> uh, <laughs> and we're getting that uh, we're getting that support as it were you are not an oracle i am not an oracle i have been saying that uh adult use um and medical cannabis will be legalized federally in five years uh every year since 1990 um i've been wrong uh, many many decades of wrong any predictions, my dear, particularly after uh, the recent announcement about um, what's going on with the, with the sort of Senate coalition building on legalization? I will say absolutely not this Congress. Um, I think that is the prediction that I could make. I would say hopefully somewhere in the, in the 118th we'll see legalization. One of the core issues that I think we look beyond and don't pay enough attention to because although you and I, Joy, love this area, a lot of people hate to talk about regulations and regulatory frameworks. And we have some gigantic issues that are being faced both uh, in the cannabis space and on the hemp side. And one of the biggest issues, and it's the biggest question, is if we are going to exist within an FDA framework, and we are not going to be a drug, technically, and we want an exception to being a drug, but we want to essentially do things that drugs can do and say things about our products that you can say about drugs. How are we going to carve that out? And I think that is a key element to what is hanging up hemp within the FDA, because that's a scary question that is really difficult to answer. It took dietary supplements 30 years to answer it and still working out the parameters of that. And so we really have to answer that key question. We want, we need medical cannabis to exist. We don't just want an adult use market regulated through TTB. We really want there to be a medical market with the ability to heal people with this medicine. But we have to be able to do the research. We have to be able to market it appropriately. And to do that, we're going to have to have an exception to the drug approval and the drug definition. And so that in itself is a question and a fight that's going to take us quite a while. And then we have the entire rest of the regulatory framework. And until those boring, uninteresting to most people details that are going to be the foundation of our industry and the biggest barriers um, to entry and also the biggest guardrails that we need. So that these are long, scary conversations. The MORE Act was able to get as far as it did because it got waiver in almost all of the committees of jurisdiction. So once we start having to have those conversations in the committees of jurisdiction, it's going gonna, it's gonna to be a while. 
Especially, and as you say, you know, took the dietary supplement industry 30 years, as I sometimes remind folks here, understand there was not a legal dietary supplement market until 1994 when the Dietary Supplement Health and Education Act, or Deshay, uh passed. That's what created a legal dietary supplement market, which still is sort of the ugly stepchild of the FDA. And we know that because the the guidance for new dietary ingredients hasn't even been up. It's in draft form from August of 2016. That's how quick uh, the FDA is excited about even dealing with new dietary ingredients that have no cannabis at all. Um, and now we've gone and created this legal uh, or at least legalized hemp and its cannabinoids and extracts and derivatives at the federal level um, and, and need to avail ourselves of the existing framework, you know, as, as you're well aware, for in terms of humans, which are different than animals, you've got your three swim lanes, you got your food and bevs, you got your dietary supplements, and you got your drugs. And for animals, we've got the food and bev, and we got the drugs. There's not even a any type of a code of federal regulation around acknowledging a, a supplement category for animals at all. Um and, and it is fascinating. So I sit on another group. You know, New York is very near and dear to my heart. I got my start in New York on the first hemp store there in the 90s. And I do a lot of a lot of work and I'm heavily engaged in the hemp-related lawmaking and rulemaking processes there and sit on some other uh, organizations, even though I'm, I live back in Seattle now. And so it's fascinating when folks from the medical and adult use cannabis perspective come in and look at hemp regulations and say, so for example, the proposed New York cannabis uh, cannabinoid hemp regulations uh, state that injectables, suppositories, inhalers, and transdermal patches are excluded from the program. And then folks who are used to a non-federal regulated, but a state regulated medical or adult use cannabis program says, hey, wait a second, you know, we think we should be allowed to, maybe not the injectables, but the, but the suppositories, the inhalers, the transdermal patches. Um, why, aren't, why aren't those allowed? And then you sit there and say, well, because those are drug delivery systems under the Code of Federal Regulations. So sort of talking CFRs, Code of Federal Regulations, talking hemp as a legal agricultural commodity, um, but then taking sort of the round hole or, or the round peg of uh, of what we're used to in the in the state programs that exist for medical and adult use, which allow these things, allow these drug delivery systems and the claims around them um, into really the square hole of the Code of Federal Regulations and state regs for for le for items and substances that are in fact federally legal. It's a very interesting to to watch that dynamic. Yeah, it's a it's a tough one. I, I will say I won't say who, but I was in a congressional office uh, talking about what is going to be our lane and what is going to be the pharmaceutical industry's lane. And the staffer put their hands over the, their ears and said, I am not ready for that conversation. <laughs> And yet, and yet it is the conversation. I mean, it's fascinating. All these years, you know, been in the move movement for, for 30 years and say, but all the while knowing the minute the DEA is removed, the FDA is sitting there waiting for us. Like, this is not GI wonder. They're sitting there waiting for us the minute it's legal. 
Yeah, and it's I've and it's something that we really have to be thoughtful about. We've seen what happens when FDA has too much discretion to do what it wants um, without any reasonable scientific factual basis. And that course of action tends to be horrendous for small business. I have seen in the supplement space, small businesses fold with one simple enforcement action predicated upon either a claim that led to paperwork issues. We're not talking about putting people in harm's way. We're not talking about safety issues. And I have seen companies fold multiple times. We're talking about hundreds of thousands of dollars to get compliant. And a lot of these companies can't do it. So we need clear, sensible guidelines and and regulations, or we are going to crush small business under the weight of, of FDA and federal regulation. You know, I think a lot of people don't realize that, you know, think, oh, supplements aren't regulated. And so therefore people think that CBD and hemp won't be regulated, but FDA, FTC, USDA, um, EPA, I think there are probably others in there when it comes to dietary supplements and not to mention the state level. So there are a multitude of regulations. It's it's how they're regulated that I think people are not used to that model. But um, we have ample regulation there and really need to be able to be sensible in how we put that together or we will crush small businesses. And there is no doubt uh, that the congressional intent, and we know this because the congressional intenders have written in amicus briefs and very many other public statements, uh, that this this crop was liberated for the farmer, for the small business, for the consumer, and yes, also for large businesses, also for drug companies. We certainly feel free to take advantage of this opportunity, but this was not legalized for you, big business and big pharma. It was legalized for the American farmer, the American consumer, and the cottage industry just as much as it was for everybody else. And so um, we're going to need to keep that, you know, um, clearly at the forefront of of every decision that we make. And thank God, uh, as I often say, for the USM Brown table really being there to sow my happy place after years of just doing everything either alone or, or with organizations that God bless them with the best of intentions, but just weren't functional or, or didn't have the funding. And, and so the USM Brown table is my happy place. We got function, we got lawyers, we've got motivated, um, wonderful people who like to collaborate and the coalition building that goes on between the roundtable, of course, other hemp organizations, the dietary supplement world, and um, and we, of course, will move on to all manner, oil, seed, and fiber as well, um, uh, and, and continue to build that membership. It's just, it's very fulfilling work and, and fulfilling place for me. Um, last but not least here, is there something that... I, I haven't asked you everything as we close in on on the time that we have to, here together today, and I can't wait to have you back on. But is there a message that you uh, may want to leave the listeners with, something that we haven't discussed or that I haven't asked yet? You know, Joy, for your listeners that are in the hemp industry right now, that are succeeding in the hemp industry, I would encourage them to look around and to do some research, to find out small, fledgling, upstart hemp businesses in your state that you could reach out to and just say, hey, you know, 
I'm here. If you'd like to get coffee sometime, is there a way that we can meet, discuss, that I can support you, and that you're looking for opportunities to add into your supply chain or into your non-plant-touching suppliers more diversity and to look for people around you that could use your help and may not be monetary. It could be as simple as sitting down for coffee and helping them understand how to get a buyer or what they need to do in terms of quality to increase the market for their product. Maybe there is something from a compliance level, but reaching out and supporting the community doesn't have to be about sweeping gigantic initiatives. It doesn't have to be scary. It can be about human connection. It could be about a love of the plant and your willingness to reach out and share your gift of knowledge with somebody in this space that shares your love for the plant. So that would just be my ask to anybody listening is find people in your space, uh, find people that could use your knowledge and be willing to share it. We're going to have a lot of opportunities through the U.S. Hemp Roundtable coming up over the year. We are doing some deeper dives and some really into the policy areas. We've gotten such an outstanding response in terms of the community really needing and wanting the information that folks in the roundtable and the other established hemp organizations have. So again, please just get involved and work like this and be willing to share. What a tremendous bit of advice there. I'm really going to be, I'm not borrowing that one. I'm just going to straight up use that one, sister. Thank you. Because, um, and I think folks don't realize it's not that the CEO has to call the CEO. You know, do you have your regulatory officer? How about you donate your regulatory officer for an hour to these small businesses to answer some high level regulatory questions, your lab guy or gal, you know, um, these are, and, and I, and the reason when, when you spoke, those ideas came to me is because I'm watching the USM Roundtable do that right now, um, members of the USM Roundtable, I should say. And so, indeed, the chopping of the wood, the carrying of the water, the meat and the greet and the reaching out, it, it is everything. Um, and I really, th this plant, I think, is, I know, is here to bring us together. Um, it's here to heal people, to heal the planet, all the winged creatures, the four-legged creatures and the swimming creatures. Um, and we do that by connecting uh, with one another and by reaching out. So I, I'm so grateful for that. I'm going to for sure be using that, Miss um, Amber. Well, I cannot thank you enough for everything that you do, for dietary supplements, for sports nutrition, for medical and adult use in sacramental cannabis, for industrial hemp, and for the minorities in cannabis. Um, sister, you are a rock star. Thank you for everything that you do, and I cannot wait to have you on again. Oh, thank you so much, Joy. Again, I... My heart is always full when I get to share these moments with you, even in working meetings. So this has been a, a really nice after hours pleasure to spend this time with you. So thank you for having me today. Oh, and you stay healthy, you, your husband, and that beautiful baby. Thank you. You as well. Thanks for listening to today's show. To check out more great cannabis podcasts, go to podconnects.com. Here's a preview of one of our other shows. Hi, y'all. I'm Joe, host of Casually Baked the Podcast. If you're curious to explore the highly responsible side of cannabis, farming, and legalization, I'm here to help lighten the stigma and build your can of confidence. Download episodes now of Casually Baked the Podcast wherever you listen to podcasts.
and journey with me through the evolving cannabis culture and discover how and why people like you are adding cannabis to their wellness toolkit. It's time to get casually baked.